Well, this morning we're going to be in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you want to turn there, Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12. While you're doing that, I want you to think with me. Have you ever had an experience in which outwardly you were going through the motions, but inwardly you recognized that your heart was not fully in something? Anybody ever have that? I can honestly say there have been many times in my life, including when I come to preach sometimes, my heart is not in it. My prayer, it's like I'm climbing up a hill at the beginning of a sermon where, Lord, help me to have my heart fully in this. I also think back to my basketball career and how many times I stood listening to the national anthem with something else on my mind, about to play before 20,000 people, a dream that I'd had my whole life, and yet something in me made it so my heart wasn't there. Those were always the games that I enjoyed the least. On the flip side, I want to ask you, have you ever had the, the experience, maybe it's a, a little bit farther between, few and farther between, but have you ever had the experience where your heart was completely in something, where you felt in that zone, where you felt like this is the moment my life is about, this is what I'm supposed to do, and your heart and your body and your mind are fully in something. It's funny, after a short break in my collegiate career, I went back to Notre Dame, I left and went back, and when I went back, somehow, someway, I treasured things more. It was almost like a near-death experience of my basketball career, right? I saw my mortality, and all of a sudden, every national anthem was my last one. And I treasured it, and I lived wholeheartedly. Those games, I remember fondly, even though I sat the bench for most of them. What about relationships? We all idealize relationships in which we're fully immersed. We want the wholehearted relationship, the romantic relationship, the soulmate, the best friend forever, the true love. But what I've noticed in ministry and in my uh, counseling I do, premarital and marriage counseling, is how quickly those relationships turn into obscurity and those once fire-hot, passionate relationships fade away into a relationship lived halfway. Maybe you're a person who can uh, associate with that. And I find that those are the relationships that oftentimes end up dying. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at one of the most important and deepest texts in the Old Testament. And within Deuteronomy. Uh, I can call it this because of all that it holds. It has a ton of shorthand for a number of different places we've already looked at and we will look at, but it holds so much. One commentator actually calls uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12-22 a mini-symphony of faith and life that captures all of the Old Testament. And I love this section for that reason, but very simply, what we're going to see is we're going to see Moses calling the people of God to live out their covenant relationship with him wholeheartedly. We're going to see wholehearted covenant faithfulness called for. And what I believe we will see is that it also holds within it a foreshadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a great degree because if all of us are honest with ourselves, this may be what we long for, but this is rarely what we feel on a day-to-day -day basis wholehearted covenant faithfulness. At the end of the day, I believe this is what each and every true follower of Jesus desires. And that true followers of Jesus are not complacent. They're not satisfied with a half-hearted walk with Jesus. And so I want to point us on the direction of this. And so let's begin by reading our text for today, and then we will break it down piece by piece. Take a look there at Deuteronomy 10, 12-22.
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt seventy persons, And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The first thing we see this morning, if you're taking notes, is the call to wholehearted covenant faithfulness. The call to wholehearted covenant faithfulness. Now let's remember where we've come so far. Remember that the book of Deuteronomy is largely structured in a way that reflects an ancient Near East covenant between a conquering king and his newly captured people. Chapters 1 through 4 speak of the introduction of the covenant. It talks about who the parties are in the covenant and what the history of their relationship has been. Chapters 5 through 11 begin the summary of the laws to which the newly conquered people need to follow in order to fulfill their obligation in the covenant. And within this summary, chapters 5 and 6 were very important because they gave the Ten Commandments, the summary of the law. They gave the great Shema from which Jesus pulled the greatest command. And this gives the requirements and the response that the benevolent, benevolent <laughs> can't say it, benevolent, there we go, a sovereign, a sovereign king requires. And that king here is Yahweh, the Exodus God that redeemed Israel. And then one step deeper as we've jumped into chapters 7 through 10, they've followed this high level, level summary of the covenant with an understanding of why God chose them. And the cautions that come with that The caution of not getting arrogant and thinking it's because of our own righteousness or because we're the right people for God to have chosen. Israel was chosen to partner with Yahweh to be a people that reflected Him to the surrounding world. And if they could do it, they would be a people that Adam and Eve were intended to be. But Moses knew they would quickly forget Yahweh. He'd traveled with them for 40 years. He knew that arrogance would creep in. And so Moses is clear that it wasn't because of their righteousness, but because of God's faithfulness in spite of their sin that they were chosen. In fact, they'd already broken the covenant. If you were here last week, Patrick taught on the golden calf and how quickly within the covenant relationship with God that the people of Israel sinned. And so God gave them a second chance because of the intercessory prayer of Moses. And he gave them new tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And so here we arrive at chapter 10, verse 12, as Moses pointedly reiterates what God requires of Israel in the midst of this covenant relationship. 
And as I said two weeks ago, I find that when we have swung the pendulum towards the grace side, which for a long time was needed in the church because there was so much focus on legalistic response, we've somehow overswung it in a lot of cases where many people believe grace requires no response at all. That there is no response to Jesus. He did it all on the cross, therefore I have no response. And many, many pastors will teach in a way where it says, say a prayer, go live your life, show up at church once in a while, and you're a Christian. And that, guys, is false. It's not here. The requirement, the response is not for salvation, it's from salvation. So Moses points out five requirements or five responses that are due to God in the midst of this covenant relationship. The first one he says here is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. In the much-needed promotion of God's love and grace in the contemporary church, I'm very concerned that we've lost this response. Fear is not something we talk about when we talk about how to respond to the Lord. And I think there's good reason for that. So what we do is we try to make it more palatable and we say, well, really that word fear is supposed to mean reverence. But this is fear, guys. Because God is capable and powerful and holy. And I think oftentimes in my own life, when I start faltering in sin, it's because I forget this one. I start thinking, well, you know, God's gracious. It's no big deal if I continue in unrepentant sin. But guys, the reality is, is God is scary. There's a reason why whenever anyone shows up in front of Him, the way they describe Him has some striking resemblance to the floor that they're laying on. God looks like gray concrete with cracks in it. Why? Because you're face down in front of the majestic and holy God. He's awe-inspiring. And I fear that Sometimes we've lost this, and so we don't understand how to interact with God. We either fear Him or we don't. We think to ourselves, if God was a good God, we wouldn't need to fear Him. But guys, children of a good father will fear their father, but that doesn't mean they won't also love Him. Let me give you another example. I fear fire enough to follow proper boundaries around it. And when that power is used properly and wisely, fire becomes a comfort, a help, and even a protector. But the second I don't respect those boundaries, then it becomes a destroyer. And that's the God we serve. That's why when John the Revelator looks in his eyes, he sees fire. Because he's either a comfort to you, or he's the one who might destroy you. And the question is, is which one do you want him to be? Because he wants to be a comfort. To not fear something of great power is simply stupidity. It's foolishness. We fear the Lord not because He is bad, but because He is good and He is holy. And so we need to operate, operate within His boundaries of holiness. And so the proper response to God is to fear Him. Second, it's to walk in all His ways. The metaphor here is to walk in the path that He has determined. And often in our career-obsessed and material-obsessed society and culture, I find that the way we take this as Christians is we often say, what job should I have to follow the Lord's path? What relationship should I have to follow the Lord's path? But guys, when the Bible talks about walking in the way of the Lord, it is pretty much never, pretty much never talking about 
your job. And yet, that's what so many of us stress out about as Christians. Especially such a young church, I interact with a lot of people, what should I do with the rest of my life? And they hate my answer, which is God doesn't care as long as it's glorifying to Him. You could be a janitor, you could be a CEO, you could run Disneyland, or you could be picking up the garbage on Main Street. It doesn't matter as long as it's glorifying to Jesus. That's walking in His ways. Regardless of circumstance, we're to live in a way that follows his commands to reflect him to the people around us. Does that mean we should do a terrible job in our occupations? Absolutely not. We do all things as unto the Lord. But that is not the key. The key is reflecting him. Third, he gave us the idea that we are to love him. And we've discussed this many times. Love is an action. It's not just positive emotional feeling or thought towards him. It's an active reciprocation of covenant faithfulness. A Christian is not one who thinks Jesus is really cool. There are plenty of non-believers, complete pagans who believe Jesus is really cool and would even sit next to you in a sermon to get a good motivational TED Talk. It is acting in covenant faithful response that shows that we are believers. Fourth is to serve Him. To serve Him. To serve Him with all your heart and soul. It's interesting, it sounds like the great Shema a bit here, to love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. Could it be that Moses is trying to write to us that to love is to serve? I think that might be it. If we love God, we will serve him and we'll serve his people. And notice that it is not as it fits our schedule, as it makes us feel good, but it's with everything in everything. And fifth, to keep his commandments and statutes. Loving God, serving him, is going to be to to respond to him by practicing the commands he has given us. And there's a really easy way for us to start and ask ourselves, where am I on this fifth one? And here's the simple question. Church, do you even know his commands? Do you know how you find out his commands? Where are they contained? The word If you never read the Word, you do not know His commands. To read the Word is to learn His commands so that you might follow them. This is why we read Scripture. Not for a daily motivational kick in the rear, but so that we might understand how to obey Him. How to respond to Him. And even more importantly, that we might understand His covenant faithfulness first and foremost to us so that we might be empowered in obeying Him. Fear the Lord, walk in His ways, love Him, serve Him, and keep His commandments. If you're anything like me, you look at this list and you think to yourself, wow. Anybody else do that? You look at this list and you say, whew, that's a lot. Anybody else feel that way? Raise your hand. Yeah? Okay, a few of you are honest. That's good. We want to do what God wants us to do. But I find that often what takes place in my life is I do what I want to do. And oftentimes, we're so hardened in rebellion that we're stiff-necked, like a donkey that's trying to be turned right, but we want to go left. And we can't seem to go a different way. Now maybe some of you in here, you know that because you're in blatant sin. Maybe it's relational sin, or sinning through substances, or perversion. And you aren't being brought to your knees, and you know it. You're sitting here this morning knowing that you're stiff-necked. You won't ask for help. You won't humble yourself under correction. 
If that's you, that's being stiff-necked. And there is an imperative here, a command, that you need to let that go. You need to drop the rebellion. You need to let that block of rebellion be removed. Now, if you feel a little subconscious uh, or self-conscious about yourself, don't worry, all of us have been in that place. And to some extent, I think all of us always are in that place. We have all, and probably still are in one way or another, been stiff-necked. It just depends on the category for me. One day I'm really good in one category, the next day I'm stiff-necked in another. Rebellious to the ways of God in my daily life. And so Moses' next statements aim to show the people why that rebellion is foolish, because rebellion makes sense if God is leading us in a direction that would be for evil or for our destruction. But look again there at verse 14. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and those uh, and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are to this day. First, Moses finishes off verse 13 there saying, these commands are for your good. So often the laws of God are viewed as God's attempt to be a killjoy, a killjoy on our fun. But God's heart for us is to use our lives and his creation well so that it is for our good. Secular sociological and psychological studies continually state that the happiest, most joy-filled people are those who are generous, just, forgiving, faithful in religious fellowship, and view relationships and family through the Judeo-Christian perspective. I can go get you stacks upon stacks of studies. There's a, a recent study even that says people who enjoy sexual intimacy the most, you know who they are? Committed married men and women. Shocking. <laughs> it's how God designed us. The people who are the most joy-filled are the people who are walking in the commands of God. Now you might say, Hans, I'm married and I am not enjoying it. Well, I would suggest to you, you need to be introspective in your marriage and in yourself because there's probably a piece of your marriage that is not following the commands of the Lord. If it were, I guarantee you there would be joy. God's commands are for our good. Second, it says that God is God. Not only does he give us the laws for our good, but he's God. He's the creator, the Lord, the highest authority. We are his creation and we are created to do as he asks, not the other way around. Your greatest need for purpose will not be fulfilled until you acknowledge this truth and submit to it. You were created for one purpose and it wasn't your job, nor your marriage, nor anything else. It was for the purpose of submitting to your creator and following his desire for you to reflect him to the world around you. But we often respond with our earthly idea of authority and that this is bad and that God is abusive in this power or that he's somehow manipulative. But Moses quickly reminds them of God's character. He says, even though God is so far above us, his compassion is so large that he set his heart in love on your fathers. He chose a people that were rebellious to him to be his own. And so if we can grasp both the awe-inspiring holiness of God and the depth of his compassionate love to call us to himself, 
then dear church, what need for rebellion is there? What need for rebellion is there? Rebellion simply harms us. You see, God is the trustworthy one, the one worthy of our complete surrender and allegiance. And in fact, surrendering to him is our highest good. And so Moses begs the people to not harden their hearts against God. And he uses this interesting phrase here in verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You remember how I made the comment about going down to Salem Mailworks and showing them that Christians aren't weird? Well guys, this verse is why people think Christians are weird. Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, how many of you, when your parents are, you're, you're walking down the hall and you see your kids interacting badly with one another and you look at them, Johnny, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, right? Is this what you use? I don't usually use this that often in my ability to train or my, my attempt to train my children. And we look at this and I think all of us as Christians, we kind of innately maybe know what this means, right? We look at it and we go, okay, he's telling them like, don't be rebellious. He follows it with don't be stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked. But I think we need to understand this. So let's pause for a second and look at this bit of an awkward statement. This had huge meaning for the Israelites. And it's such a simple statement when you really get down to it. You see, this goes all the way back to the idea of circumcision as the sign of their covenant in Genesis 17. This was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so this is in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. I'll just read it to you. And God said to Abraham, as for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, interestingly, circumcision was something done by some pagans as well. It is a a misunderstanding that pagans didn't do this. Some pagans did this, but... In most cases, if it was done by a pagan, it was done as a rite of passage into manhood at puberty. Okay? God was gracious in letting it happen at eight days old. And the Israelites are the first to do it as a sign of inclusion into the community of faith. But here is the simplicity of the statement in Deuteronomy. To be a male that wanted to bring your family into the covenant, you would need to be circumcised in the flesh. Now, not to be too graphic, but is that a pretty big deal for a grown man? And ladies, yes, it is. All right, just just FYI. Especially if you think about it, this was in a day where they had no pain meds or antiseptic or even bags of frozen peas. Right? This is rough. This is not good. It could mean the potential of being maimed or even killed if it went wrong. This is not good. So what would an Israelite do if a foreign male came to them and said, I want to be part of this covenant? Well, they'd respond and they'd say, okay, great, but you have to be circumcised. Now, what do you think they'd do if that person responded and said, no, I'm good. 
but I still want to be part of your people. What do you think they'd do? They'd look at him and they'd say, well, you're not because you're not actually serious about this. You want all the good stuff, but you don't want any of the response. You don't want any of the requirements. They'd tell the person to go away. So if we took some license and expanded on Moses' comment in Deuteronomy, we might put it like this. You know how serious it is to be purposeful in outer life if you want to partake in the covenant with God. Be that serious in your inner life too. In the way you think. In how you submit your emotions and thoughts to God. In your internal values and priorities. Circumcise your hearts. Be purposeful and do not waver in your internal devotion to God. Be as serious internally as you are externally. That's what it means to circumcise your heart. And what's so interesting is as a pastor, I hear it constantly. Well, Hans, it just sounds like a lot of work to take my thoughts captive. I mean, I, thousands of times a day, I'd be taking my thoughts captive. That sounds hard, right? Well, go back a few thousand years to the men who were told, circumcise yourselves in order to enter this covenant. It's not easy. In fact, it's a massive, massive thing. Hans, I don't want to give up this part of my life. I know I should, but I don't want to give it up in devotion to God. It's too hard. It would feel like cutting part of me out. Well, what do you think circumcise your heart means? In other words, what Moses is saying is get rid of the rebellious block that keeps you in covenant rebellion. And if you do this, Moses says, you will be like and look like the Father God. And that's what he continues with. So the next thing that we'll see is this. You can write this down. The evidence of wholehearted covenant faithfulness. Moses goes on to speak of how we will look like God. The evidence of wholehearted covenant faithfulness. And don't worry, I'm done being irreverent for the day. Look with me at Deuteronomy 10, 17-19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here Moses speaks to God's majesty and his justice. He is a God who is at work on behalf of the oppressed and the vulnerable. And dear church, please hear me in this. Please look up if you're looking at your notes. Look up. Hear me in this. This is not a list of possible outreach opportunities. This is not a list that you pick and choose from if you're a Christian. Well, I minister to this group of people, but not this group of people. What this is saying is that if you are a covenant follower of Yahweh God, then you care about every one of these groups. This is not a list to choose from. God is a God who is at work on behalf of the most vulnerable in society. And those that are followers of Jesus are as well. That's why we as a church work with DHS. Because there is no choice to be obedient to the command to care for the fatherless. And the way we do that in this society, you have to work through DHS. We care for the poor. 
Well, Hans, where do we do that? Well, there's a group of you who you spent part of your time over the holiday season to go and care for the homeless in this community at the time when they probably felt the lowest. I praise God for that. That's why we work with the homeless population in Salem. It's also why we do the work we do in Burkina. It is not an option to care for the poor when you feel like it. It's also not an option to care for the widows. Now, we don't have a ton of widows in our church, but the work we do in Burkina Faso cares for a ton of widows. Where we can, we step into these. And this last group, the sojourner, is an interesting one. I want us to be very clear here of who God declares himself to be. He is a God of justice, one who cares for these groups. And this word sojourner is very specific. In the Hebrew, it's the word ger. Everybody say ger. In Hebrew, it means the one that lives among you that was not born among you. In our language, it's the resident alien or the immigrant. Love the immigrant, therefore, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. And why of all groups does God love this group of people? Why does he choose this group of people in verse 19? I think because it's an indicator of a society's heart of justice if they care for the immigrant. Jesus claimed these same characteristics during his ministry. At least four times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as this same thing, a similar thing, King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, Lord of lords. And it's within his ministry that we see this same heart to take care of the vulnerable, those abused in society, those looked down upon. And why did Jesus do this? Because Jesus was the express image of the Father in the material world. He was the truest of what humans are to be. And so it follows then, church, that if we are obedient to the covenant that God has called us to, we will find ways to execute justice for the fatherless and the widow and to love the sojourner, the immigrant. In fact, we would give them from what we have our food, our clothing, so that they might be provided for. Remember how we defined love earlier? It is parallel to serving. We are to serve the immigrant. Now, most likely because of the political environment in this country, I probably lost maybe even half of you when I used the word immigrant. Because we have unfortunately allowed our political mindset to overcome the direct command of Jesus Christ. Our politics overcome biblical truth constantly, and it doesn't matter what party you're part of. On one side, I see people dismiss this command. On the other side, I see people dismiss immediately the command to obey your government, to pray for your leaders. And dear church, we must have the balance of both. Dear brothers and sisters, fellow co-laborers and members within the new covenant of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is this where our heart is at? Do we love so deeply that we love even the stranger amongst us? Do we love so deeply that we love even our enemies? Perhaps the Lord would check our hearts this morning so that we can put aside politics and security and comfort and ease and anything else that holds our neck stiff against the command of Christ. And perhaps we can finally submit our hearts to agree with the Lord's word. I love what commentator Christopher Wright says about this section. Let me read it to you. 
He says, Moses skips over, as it were, love commands that might have naturally followed. To love God, to love fellow Israelites as neighbors. And he goes to the most radical and demanding of the list, to love the alien, the sojourner. And he makes that the content of this second great command in response to the greatness of God. Was it perhaps an assumption that if Israel could demonstrate practical love to the sojourner, they would be likely to sustain other aspects of the social charter God was giving them? Or was it perhaps the insight that love for aliens will always be the first feature of any society to evaporate in times of social pressure and conflict? Xenophobia, exploitation, and precisely the kind of scapegoat politics that Israel suffered in Egypt are much more typical. Whatever the reason, it is an astonishing singling out of that particular love commandment in such a lofty context. The word is clear that we must respect and submit to the governing authorities under which we live. There has to be a rule of law in place, and the word is clear that we must also make room for and serve the immigrant who finds their way among us. And so this leaves us with a couple of imperatives, applications that I want you to write down. I want our church to be a church that does both. Not a church that dismisses the law of the land we live in. Not a church that dismisses or tries to beat up on the leaders trying to figure out a solution. Nor are we to be a church that dismisses the idea of caring for the sojourner. So the first thing we need to do is that we need to be a people that do not jump into the political debates on these issues, especially on social media. Can I get an amen? Stop with the social media, please. No one's listening. Everyone's just talking. So don't jump into the political debate. Rather, be a people who pray for our Democrat and Republican, and Independent, and whatever else, leaders. Be a people who pray regardless of party. Be a people who pray that our leaders would seek wisdom to accomplish both purposes, to maintain the law and to make room for the immigrant. To be a people that protect ourselves and to be a people of charity and generosity who make room for the poor and those seeking refuge. Second, not only do we need to pray, we need to love those among us who are new to our culture. And the first way we can do that is to pray for them. Dear church, as you're praying for many different things, as you're praying for the leaders of our country, I would also ask that you pray for the immigrants among us, that they might find churches where they can learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can also ask if we as a church are attempting to engage them. I don't know if you've looked around lately, but we are a very white church. We are a very monochromatic church. And so it might be kind of hard for a person of a different ethnicity or culture to find their way in here and feel at home. And if we are to call ourselves a hospitable church, we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we go about doing that? Well, 20 years ago, the Latino population in Oregon was a third of what it is now. And in the next 30 years, it is suggested that this number will double again. And I want us to start asking ourselves, if we are a church that has vision for the future of how we are to spread the gospel in our own neighborhood, the question is, do we even speak the language to share the gospel? I think it would be wonderful if our church took on the push to learn Spanish. 
myself included. There's a wonderful group of a number of you who meet regularly, that speak in Spanish, and to converse. Jeanette back there is one of them. Raise your hand, Jeanette. Brian Felix is right here. Raise your hand. Um, Carolina's one right there. Raise your hand. Who else is in the group? Raise your hand. Yeah, kind of, kind of, sort of. Okay, we got a few different people. Okay. They're, they're shy. They don't want to raise their hand. Um, there's a number of people. Talk to any one of those people. Go to that group. Learn Spanish. Why? Because the best way to show someone you love them is to learn their language. We got picked up by a driver in Disneyland and he's uh, from Egypt. And man, you can notice all the signs. He has got, all throughout his car, he's got tons of, of images and, and icons to show that he is an Orthodox Christian, not a Muslim. Now, why do you think he'd be worried about that in the United States? Right? And he was trying to be as nice as possible. In fact, he was shoving candy down our kid's throat in order to let us know that he cared for us. So I grabbed my phone, and I do not speak Arabic, but I've heard Arabic, and so I thought to myself, if I can at least see it. So I got a couple of words, right? And I, I said, hey, his, uh, I won't use his name uh, on the radio, but I said, hey, dude, uh, is, is this the right word? And I said it out loud to say goodbye, and he's like, yeah, you know Arabic? And I said, no, not really, but is this the right word to say thank you? And he's like, yeah, good job. And so then we got out of the car, and guess which two words I used? Thank you and goodbye. He had a grin from ear to ear, and he spoke great English. It's a great way to show the immigrants among us that we love them by learning the language to be able to speak to them. So I would suggest to you that that's a great application. If you're a person who's feeling, man, I would love to be involved in that, jump into it. Well, Moses finishes this section with a bookend, if you will, of similar reasoning as to why we need to love to this extent. Verse 22 is shorthand that God has proven himself faithful to his covenant to Abraham. He is our God, our praise, and the one we should fear. Why? Because he's the one that has been faithful to the covenant promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God that is faithful in covenant love to his people. But guys, you know the story of the Bible. Was this covenant faithfulness of God enough to draw the Israelites into obedience? Do they look at his covenant faithfulness and they say, great, now we're empowered to do this? Well, no, and Moses knew this. You see, this is one of those texts where if we do not read through the rest of the Bible and understand the full narrative of Scripture, we can walk out of this sermon today hearing that imperative command, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and go, oh man, I know that's me. Oh, i got to work harder. And that's what we can walk out of here with today, but that is not the biblical narrative. Let's look more closely. Moses was here pleading with the people saying, guys, come on, look at how good our God is. Put your own heart into this covenant and don't waver any longer. But he knew this would not work and that Israel would eventually walk away from their covenant. How do we know this? Well, flip a little bit to the right to Deuteronomy 30. Go there with me, Deuteronomy 30. And Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 8, let's take a look at it. He's basically given them all the laws and commands. He said, if you do these things, there will be blessing. If you don't, there will be curse. And he says, guys, you're cursed. You're not going to do this very well. And so then he says in verse 1, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So are you as confused as I am? Which is it? Do I circumcise my heart or does he? Which is it? Is the Lord going to do that work for them or are they responsible to do it? Well, the rest of the Old Testament narrative shows us what Moses knew to be true. You move into Joshua, into Judges, into Kings, and people did what was right in their own eyes. They walked away from the covenant to the point where Israel's heart of covenant commitment goes from bad to worse. And by the time you hit the prophets, the curse of exile is upon Israel, so much so that the prophet Jeremiah, among others, says, guys, Babylon is knocking on your door to destroy you because you have been so unfaithful in fulfilling your covenant. Jeremiah 4.4, he uses the same language. He cries out to Judah and Israel and he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's acting as a legal attorney saying that they are guilty here. And so they go into exile. You know that story. And in the midst of that exile, God speaks to them through the prophets and promises that one day, in spite of their sinfulness, he will do what they could not. He will give them new hearts. This is Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now guys, if you are like me, you feel more like the people in Deuteronomy than the people who've been given a new heart. Does anybody else feel that way? I feel like I am a person that just needs to work harder because man, I am sinful. But see, the reality is, is that we are not the people in Deuteronomy. You and I, we hang our heads and think, I know, I need to circumcise my heart. What is wrong with me? Why am I not more wholeheartedly following Christ? When is God going to make me different? When is He going to make good on His promise to give me a new heart so that I can completely follow Him? I get this question often from you, from believers. Hans, why won't God give me that new heart? And what we read from the text today could be interpreted as a command that we must just work harder. But dear church, here's the truth. We operate from a place thinking we have to earn that new heart. We have to do the work to get that new heart. The reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he has already given it to us. Dallas read from Colossians 2 earlier, and you can turn there with me now. The walk that Christ calls us to is not one to make our hearts different by our own activity, but to recognize who we are in Christ and that He has already done that work. He has fulfilled to an extent Ezekiel 36. He has inaugurated 
the time period in which his people have new hearts, but it's not done yet. Like I said, our text from before the teaching that Dallas read to us speaks of this. Colossians 2, verse 11. In Him, in Jesus Christ also, you were... Is that future, present, or past tense? Past tense. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so, dear church, the last point I want to make to you today is this. The cross initiated our walk towards wholehearted covenant faithfulness. Rather than being a people waiting for it to happen, waiting for that time period to start, waiting to get those new hearts, we must realize that what the cross did in the forgiveness of sins, in the atonement for all that we've done in stiff-necked rebellion against God, it also initiated a new heart in each and every one of us. And while we cannot claim that we stand here fully, wholeheartedly, covenantally faithful to God, that time is coming. And we are closer to it today than we were yesterday. And we are moving in that direction. You see, dear brothers and sisters, Moses knew that there was something innately broken in the people. They had no ability to change their hearts, and so his plea fell on deaf ears. And he, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, saw a time when God would miraculously act in such a way that his spirit would change their hearts and place a new capability to give themselves over to wholehearted devotion to God. And we sit in between these two events. The promise of the fullness and the fullness to come. We sit in the inaugurated time period where his kingdom has begun, but it is not in fullness yet. And we are given new hearts but our old flesh has not completely died away. And so this work of replacing our hearts with God's, of circumcising our flesh and having our old man buried, it's been started, but it's not yet here in fullness. And so rather than standing in the place of the Old Testament where they hoped that their external actions would move inward to change their hearts, we as New Covenant believers, we start from the small seed of God's Word and His Spirit placed in us at the time that we convert to follow Him. And that moves slowly but surely outward as we give it room to. And from that point on, we strive and work not for salvation, but from salvation. Not for the covenant that outward works proclaim, but rather we strive to let our true nature, the nature of the newborn child of God, the new man and woman of God, move outward from within, move outward into our thoughts, emotions, and actions. You see, the reality is for many of you in this room, you think I have to get rid of all this old stuff. No, you simply need to let the new stuff take charge. You need to let the Holy Spirit of God that is within you actually lead you. You need to let the truth of what the God's Word says about you become your identity. 
You need to shut down all that is against him so that he might rule and reign in your lives. And this is why Paul says this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. This is chapter 4, 16 and on. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the coming kingdom, the fact that Jesus reigns and that his people are part of that kingdom. He says that we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. That's our resurrected body. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, not just that we would get rid of our sinfulness, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You have a guarantee that this day is coming when you will wholeheartedly follow Jesus Christ. And every moment from now until then is a process of you seeing the truth of who you are in Christ come out and show itself to be the fullness of who you are. Mission Fellowship this morning, do not hear the Word of God in Deuteronomy commanding you to fix yourself. That is impossible. We are stiff-necked 100%. What the truth of God's Word is giving you this morning is that Jesus Christ has accomplished what was long promised to the people of God. What those hearers of the original speech in Deuteronomy longed for, Jesus Christ's death on the cross has given you. His death on the cross paid the price for the sin of rebellion against your Creator. His resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit has inaugurated a new day. Guys, it does not start when you die and go to heaven. It starts today. Eternity starts today. And His resurrection proved that to us. His resurrection showed us a new day. One in which His Spirit is going to rule and reign. And that same Spirit is within you, growing and strengthening, causing you to be formed into the likeness of a new man or new woman. And you are the beginning of God's new humanity. Your job is to recognize and realize that truth. This is why Paul begins this section in Colossians with this statement. Take a look at 2.6, right above it. Therefore, as you received Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in Him, I've said this to you guys before. Bad parenting is when you take your child and go, what were you thinking? What is wrong with you? I can't believe you did that. Hurry up and be better. That's called shame-based parenting. Good parenting is this. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High King. You have a new heart within you. You know what it is to reflect your Savior. How do we do that? Let's walk together in seeing what that looks like in your life. And this is what Paul, as a good father, is trying to get out of his children. He's saying, dear church, stop trying to earn your salvation and realize you already have it. 
Stop trying to earn a new heart and realize it's already been placed in you. And so then he says in chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And so then he says two things. Verse 6 there, or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 5. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And then he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, realize who you are and act like it. We no longer strive for a new heart. We have been given one already. As you read the word and take part in the communion of the saints, let your spirit lead you in greater obedience, greater conviction, and a walk more and more in wholehearted covenant faithfulness with each passing day. And one day that striving will be complete. And your partnership with Christ in destroying your flesh and raising up the spirit will be complete as we shed this earthly body and have a new vessel, a resurrected vessel in which we can obediently walk with Christ in a renewed and redeemed heaven and earth. I look forward to that day, don't you? In the meantime, we set our eyes on that vision and we walk more and more each and every day in wholehearted covenant faithfulness. And so we can walk away this morning with a couple of applications. The first thing we saw earlier is, is that as we have been redeemed to walk in the ways of God, we must challenge ourselves to reflect His love to everyone around us. And we already thought through how to follow the command to love the immigrant. I want us to be a church where people of different cultures and different backgrounds feel at home because we are a church that is hospitable. That's a long road to hoe, dear church. Don't think that because I bring this up this morning, okay, now we're good and we're going to try and do this. We as leadership are going to be talking about how in the next 10 to 20 years we become a church where this growing Latino population in Oregon feels comfortable to come here and hear the words of our Savior. Secondly, We must recognize that we are not commanded to fix our hearts on our own, but to focus our thoughts on the redemptive work of the cross so that we might be empowered to follow the leading of the Spirit in obeying the commands of Christ. We are commanded to do one thing, and that is to fix our eyes on His wholehearted covenant faithfulness. His wholehearted covenant faithfulness so that we might strive to be like Him. If you are here today and you recognize that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are that person who says, I want the easy parts of Christianity. I'll pray the prayer, but all the rest you can do on your own. If you're that person, then I want to talk to you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Come back and talk with me uh, while we're doing worship or at the end of service. And I'll walk you through what it is to be a disciple and how to step into that relationship with Christ. Or talk to any of the leaders in our church. If you're a person, though, who knows that you're walking with Jesus, I want today to be an encouragement. You do not have to work harder. You simply have to be who God has called you to be. Lay down the shame. 
lay down the false lies that you hear in your life and allow the truth of who Christ has made you to be by his Holy Spirit come through. We fix our eyes on his wholehearted covenant faithfulness so that we might strive to be like him. And I want to encourage you to surrender to God's love and faithfulness. To put to death that which holds you in stiff-necked rebellion. If you are a person this morning that you come here and you've got something that has happened last week or last few weeks that you need to lay at the table of communion, you need to go to someone and repent or confess, you need to come to leadership and talk about sin, please do that. We won't beat you up. We'll walk with you and we'll help you. Put to death that which holds you in stiff-necked rebellion and ask the Lord to empower you with His Spirit so that you might put on the reflection of His likeness, walking towards wholehearted covenant faithfulness.